Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We now have wonderful randomized controlled trials that really support the earlier that we give allergenic foods to babies and keep it in the diet. Let them eat it. Don't rub it on the skin. That's our best path towards preventing food allergy. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Well, hey guys, welcome back. I know I say this every week, but I am so excited about today's interview. Basically, the biggest person in pediatric food allergy is here to talk to us today. It's Dr. David Stukas. He is gonna be chatting with me about why are false positive results in food allergy testing so common. Like this is mind blowing to me. On what planet can you have a 50% false positive rate? And then doctors are still like mass ordering these tests. So I want to get it from the horse's mouth. Dr. Stukas is, he's everything in food allergy guys, board certified in allergy and immunology and pediatrics. He's the director of the food allergy treatment center at nationwide children's. He's an internationally recognized expert on pediatric food allergy, having multiple appointments on pretty much every important panel and task force with American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. His bio goes on and on, but the reason why I love him as a food allergy expert is because he's super active on social and actually knows how to translate like all the nerdy research stuff into tips and tangible advice that parents can use. On Instagram, on Twitter, there's literally no one more interesting than Dr. Stukas. He's at Kids Allergy Doc. Today, though, we're talking about food allergy testing and the questions that parents have. Dr. Stukas is speaking frankly about why do doctors overorder food allergy tests? Why are oral food challenges at home actually the best test of whether or not your baby is allergic? And then what should you do if your baby does react and your doctor recommends a ton of unnecessary food allergy tests? Dr. Stukas's suggestion is run, but he does a great job of breaking down the complexities of food allergy tests. And I'm so excited to have the opportunity to chat with him today. So with no further ado, I want to introduce you to Dr. David Stukas talking about why are false positive results in food allergy testing so common. All right. Well, hi, Dr. Stukas. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Okay. So you are literally like everything related to food allergy, every book, every publication. I mean, your name pops up. I don't know, A, where you get all the time to do this and work and have a family. Can you tell us how you got into the marvelous world of food allergies and allergies in general? 
No, absolutely. Well, thanks for your kind words. And you're right. I, I've had the opportunity to be involved in multiple different uh, platforms to help educate surrounding food allergies, whether it's parents and the general public or my colleagues through research and publications. So as an academic pediatric allergist, I work at Nationwide Children's Hospital, which is affiliated with the Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus, Ohio. I am the director of our brand new food allergy center, which we just opened a few weeks ago. We've treated food allergies for you know years and decades, um, but we now have a dedicated center that we actually can just devote to all these families. And a lot of what I do is really trying to communicate evidence-based information and put it into clinical practice. It's conversations I have with families every day in the office setting. I spend a lot of time on social media as well, because I believe in the power of filling the void and combating misinformation. And then I take those lessons towards what I do with my research and quality improvement. And I, I'm fortunate to be one of 12 allergists that I'm a member of the joint task force on practice parameters where we actually write the clinical guidelines. So we, we review all the evidence and then we help all educate our colleagues about what to do. So I'll stop there, but long story short, I really like trying to take complicated medical information, break it down into bite-sized pieces that people can understand. And I love that you bring your message to social media as well, because I mean, no disrespect to your field, but there is so much gray area in the world of food allergies. It's so confusing to parents. And then sometimes when they reach out to medical professionals or trying to, you know, let's talk to the leaders in the industry. It's like, you can't understand what they're saying, but your messaging is so clear. I was not surprised when I saw that you had co-authored social media for medical professionals, strategies for successfully engaging in an online world, because man, they need it. A lot of times healthcare professionals can't speak the language that their patients are talking every day. And then all of the best research in the world, if nobody understands how to interpret it or put it into practice, it's kind of not worth it. So thank you for making these really complicated topics accessible and understandable to your general parent like myself, who is just trying to navigate through this world of food allergies with kids. It's my pleasure. And you know, it, I adopted a stance a while ago, and I think it, it works out well of there is very little black and white in what we do with health and medicine. Anybody who stands up on a pulpit and says, you absolutely have to do this. I mean, they're either selling something or they're misguided or they just don't understand. The individual variation is highly variable. There are so many nuances involved. You can take 100 people with peanut allergy and they're going to have different risk in regards to how much they need to eat to cause a reaction, different types of reactions. Some can tolerate certain products and not others. So what I try to do is just talk about risk. What are the risks? What are the benefits? And there's no right or wrong answer. And really trying to meet people with where they are. You know, um, shared decision-making is sort of this hot term in medicine. And what that is, is as the expert, it's my job to say, here's what I think is the most likely diagnosis here, the testing, the test that I think may or may not be indicated here, are the risks and benefits of different treatment options. It's my job then to elicit from the, the patient or the family, what are your values? What are your preferences? What is important to you in your daily life? And then we try to come up with a plan together that really you know, meets those needs. And then we reevaluate. Did we achieve the outcomes we wanted? Yes, great. No, then let's reevaluate and go again. I like the idea of shared decision-making, especially when you're navigating this scary area for a lot of parents. I literally just got off a parent call right before this interview with the mom. She's in Canada, first-time mom. Baby has hives from a number of different foods, not on a lot of other symptoms. Went to her allergist, waited forever for the appointment. The allergist tested for 50 things even though the baby had only reacted to milk and egg and peanut. And she was like, then tests were coming back. And she's like, I went and got retested. At first, almond had been positive. Now it's negative. She's like literally tearing her hair out. And the doctor said to her, which is unfortunate, 
you just need to stop worrying so much. And she's like, that doesn't seem right. But she said, I'm not in a position to like request a different opinion. I would wait six more months, at which point my baby's a year and I haven't done these allergenic foods. So I, I just love to hear that there are leaders in the field working with parents like yourself, like not only working on guidelines and publications, but actually working with parents in a clinic setting every day. That really does shine through, I think, in your work, because some researchers are very far removed from the patient experience that they don't know how to interact with parents. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. Yeah, it's all about trust, right? And we want to be a good valued resource. We know we're not the only resource in people's lives. They have family members and friends in their social circles and, you know, um, whoever else they engage with. But if families can't trust me, even trust me to say, I don't know when I don't know, which I say quite a bit, <laughs> but we walk through it, um, you know, then that's the most important part of the, the physician-patient relationship, in my opinion. Can we talk a little bit about food allergy testing? Like how accurate is it? And then what are the chances if you get your baby tested that the results will possibly be incorrect? The best test is what happens when you eat a food. Because if you have a food allergy, and for today's conversation, we'll refer to food allergies as immunoglobulin E or IgE antibody mediated reactions. If you have a food allergy, every single time you eat that food, no matter what form, you should have pretty rapid onset within minutes rarely longer than a couple hours later, reproducible symptoms. Objectively, I should look at you and say, wow, you're having a food allergy reaction because various parts of the body are involved. Most commonly, we'll see skin rashes or hives or itching. You can have swelling often of the lips or the face. It can involve nausea, vomiting. You can have wheezing. You can have anaphylaxis, which is any combination of those systems, uh, symptoms that progress rapidly. So if you're eating a food without having any of those symptoms, uh, you're not allergic to the food. It's as simple as that. Um, so the best test that we spend our time trying to elicit is what happens when you eat the food. If you have chronic symptoms and you can't identify specific foods that are causing the symptoms or symptoms are occurring randomly, you probably don't have a food allergy. We see people all the time that have very sensitive skin, eczema, chronic hives, not due to allergy. As humans, it's human nature for us to correlate something we eat with symptoms that are occurring on a regular basis because we eat all day, every day especially young children. They're eating snacks and babies are eating you know, every couple of hours sometimes. So it's normal human nature to say it must be because of something they're eating. That's why they have the symptoms. So we spend all of our time focusing on the history. That's the best test. If the history suggests IgE-mediated reactions, rapid onset hives, swelling, anaphylaxis, then we have food allergy testing that can help determine whether that's a true allergy. We have skin testing in the office setting or we have blood testing. 
both tests have very high rates of false positive results. There's a lot of people who have elevated results that aren't actually allergic to the food. In fact, about 40% of all children will have detectable IgE to milk, egg, shrimp, or peanut, but only about 5% are actually allergic. So if we rely on testing alone, we're going to overdiagnose the vast majority of people. There's a lot of reasons why we get false positives. There's cross-sensitization with you know, airborne allergens that people may have allergies to. Uh, these are just imperfect tests. Kids with eczema and, and lots of other allergies may have false positives because they have a lot of total IgE floating around, which isn't harmful. But there's a lot of reasons why we get this background clutter. So the testing that we choose absolutely should be guided by the history that we obtain. Food allergy tests are not screening tests. They don't meet any criteria of what a good screening test should have. There's too many false positives. They can't predict future reactions for somebody who's never eaten a food. Food allergy tests don't tell us the severity of future reaction, but we do tend to believe negative results when we see them. So there's a lot that goes, that kind of packs in there. I'll pause now to see if you have any you know, questions to tease out from there, but testing alone is rarely indicated unless the history suggests food allergy. And I did want to ask you that in a follow-up question. As I understand it, there's a high rate of false positives, but if you get a negative result, that's pretty believable. Is that what I'm hearing you say? The negative predictive value is very high. We do see some false negatives, but then again, the history matters. If you said, hey, Dave, uh, you know, three weeks ago, I ate peanut butter and I ended up in the emergency room and they gave me epinephrine three times because I had severe hives and wheezing and vomiting, but you have a negative test result. Well, I believe your history, uh, the testing is negative, which is interesting. So maybe we need to find other causes or we can consider an oral food challenge. And that's something that we do on a regular basis where that's the best test. What happens when you eat the food? So come hang out with me for half of a day, half a day. When the history is indeterminate, when the testing is indeterminate, or if we think somebody with a known food allergy is developing tolerance over time, we can give them gradually increasing amounts in a very safe way, and we observe. If nothing happens after eating one or two servings, you're not allergic to it. Put it back on your diet, expand your diet. Even if symptoms do occur, we confirm the diagnosis. We see some idea of how much do you need to eat to cause symptoms. And then if treatment is necessary, parents get that wonderful experience of, oh my gosh, I was always scared to give epinephrine, and now they actually see how fast it works, how safe it is, and how reliable it is. And I appreciate what you're saying, that the history determines the course of action. And so when you mentioned an oral food challenge, for families with no history, with no risk, with no reaction, is it safe for them to do a quote-unquote oral food challenge with their baby if the history doesn't indicate that they might be allergic? Is it safe to do that at home? So are you asking me if it's safe for parents to feed their babies? Yes. <laughs> we have done an amazing job as pediatricians and allergists at simply scaring the hell out of parents everywhere. And the reason why is because 20 years ago, we thought it was the best advice to avoid giving certain foods. The recommendations were give no dairy until one, no eggs till two, no nuts or seafood till three. And if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, don't eat anything at all because you're going to cause your kid to have food allergies. Well, it turns out that there wasn't much evidence to support that. It made sense based upon our understanding of the immune system at the time. As research and science has evolved, we now have wonderful randomized controlled trials that really support the earlier that we give allergenic foods to babies and keep it in the diet. Let them eat it. Don't rub it on the skin. We want to let them eat it, expose it to the immune system through the gut and keep it in the diet on a consistent basis. That's our best path towards preventing food allergy. So, you know, we have a lot to undo, a lot of harm that has been done, a lot of psychology that's been, you know, that goes into this as well, but we really want to instill confidence. So yes, can parents feed their babies? You don't need my permission to do that. 
feed your baby. We don't get patients because, you know, kids have, you know, they die the first time they eat peanut. More often than not, they may get a rash or have some vomiting. Severe allergic reactions are very rare in infants. And you can always lower risk by going slowly. Try a few small bites. Wait for five or 10 minutes. If nothing happens, give a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then if something does occur, you call your pediatrician, your allergist. I really appreciate your down-to-earth approach and recommending food first because we are kind of moving into this arena in food allergy prevention where I think there are a lot of brands out there trying to scare parents into thinking that babies can't eat food-based versions of these potentially allergenic foods. So the irony is not lost to me. Are you asking me if it's safe for my baby to be fed food? I am not joking you. Every single day I get messages, as I'm sure you do as well, from parents who ask that very question. Like they're the fear factor is so high with this when the absolute or overall risk is actually quite low and not discounting how serious food allergies are. But for so many parents, they listen, because this is also scary. I'm just going to get my baby tested for everything before I try any of these foods. Is that a good approach? It's a terrible approach. Um, it's going to cause more anxiety because you're going to get, you're going to find false positives eventually. If you do enough of those tests on enough children, you're going to find false positives. And it's really hard for a lot of parents to overcome seeing that positive result and understanding what, what that means, what that doesn't mean. So an elevated IgE test only indicates sensitization. It doesn't mean you're allergic. If you're eating a food but sensitize, you're tolerant. In fact, if somebody's eating a food and they're tested for that food and then they're told to stop eating that food because of an elevated IgE, that can actually create food allergy. And this just makes me so angry because there are well-intentioned physicians everywhere doing these tests on babies with eczema or other symptoms that aren't related to food allergy at all. They tell parents to take the food out of their diet. By the time I see them months later and we try to reintroduce it, they have an allergic reaction. They actually caused an allergic reaction in somebody who was tolerant but sensitized by telling them to take it out of their diet. That's a real problem. That's one example of why these tests are are problematic. There are now at-home versions of these, which is a terrible idea. Just, you know, sort of quote-unquote scan for 200 different food allergies or food sensitivities, which also is not actually a medical you know, test that is, is validated in the, in the evaluation of food sensitivity. That's IgG testing. But none of these are screening tests. So we shouldn't be using them in that manner at all. No, I love it. Thank you for saying that. Like Sometimes it's nice to hear someone else say the same thing that you've been saying in much better terminology without using any profanity. So thank you for doing that. But no, I do feel the same. And I honestly, I was just working with a pediatrician And we were talking about a good friend of his who's pediatric allergist. And he's like, you know, there's just this notion of testing all the time and all the time. And he's like, so many of my colleagues who are pediatricians, if they don't specialize in this, they just recommend blanket testing across the board. It only causes more anxiety. It wastes time. It wastes resources. It wastes money. And it causes so much anxiety for parents. Would you say that there is a, not to be dramatic, but an epidemic of over-testing for food allergies when it's not indicated? Yes. There's a Choosing Wisely series started by the American Board of Internal Medicine a couple of decades ago. They partner with specialties. Number one on the list from the Allergy Choosing Wisely series, number one of things not to do, do not order indiscriminate IgE testing or IgG testing for a large panel of foods. Number one on the list of things not to do because it causes such real harm. These tests are rampant. We got our institution to actually remove all food allergy panels from our laboratory services over a year ago. This was a huge win. You can absolutely still order blood IgE testing for any food. But you just like take it off the form? That's awesome. Now you can't order it? No, these, these panels are pushed by the companies who make money off of them. They're not medically beneficial and they cause harm, but they're marketed out there and they, they're marketed as being beneficial, but they're not. Why on earth, if you're worried about peanut allergy, would you get a panel that includes rice and corn and milk and egg? 
And then the results come back and they scare you. You don't know what to do with them. And that leads to big problems. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it was the other day, it was um, a parent telling me about an allergy to rice, which is, as I understand it, like the most hypoallergenic food. You basically like can't be allergic to rice. Is that true? I mean, I'm sure you can, but like yeah, the I'm numbers sure you are. Can. I, I've yet to diagnose that. <laughs> as soon as you say no, never, someone will say, I know someone that had a rice allergy. Can we talk about, you were mentioning a little bit like the risk in the real number. And I think, you know, for parents, again, who are not, not everyone listening has advanced degrees in allergy and immunology, and have, but they want to know the numbers. If you put a hundred babies in a room and they all try peanut, like what's the overall risk? Like what percentage of babies, not even just knowing if they have food allergies, and I understand how hard it is to even get that correct data, but like what percent are going to have a severe allergic reaction? Like, is this really something parents should be just as anxious about as they are? Anything numerically you can put into context for us? Yeah, I love that question. So if all parents are worried about feeding their baby because of risk for allergic reaction, we are th that is overly conservative. Because if you take 100 babies, 95 of them will never develop any food allergy, period. But if you take 100% of those parents that are worried about their kids are going to be, you know, have an allergic reaction, boy, that's a problem. Only 5% even need to worry about it. 98 of them will never have peanut allergy. 97 will never have milk allergy. 98 will never have egg allergy. So the vast majority are never going to have to worry about this, but all of them are treating this as if it's, you know, a life or death situation of feeding their baby. As far as severe allergic reactions with first introduction, that's extremely rare. Yes, it does happen. But again, more often than not, you're going to get a rash or maybe you're going to have some vomiting. There's going to be some sign that, oh boy, this isn't what I expected it to be or something's not right here, especially if it's reproducible over time. So that's a really important concept. And I'm glad you asked about that because, you know, for most people out there, it's not an issue. And if you really want to worry about this, the babies who have truly persistent eczema. So eczema is a chronic skin condition hallmarked by loss of moisture from the skin, really dry skin. And you get the inflamed patches inside the elbows, behind the knees, or on the torso, on the cheeks, and things like that. Those babies that develop early eczema around one to two, three months of age, and it remains persistent, it's not these little patches that pop up here and there and come and go when you put moisturizer cortisone on it. It's the truly persistent eczema. Those are the babies raising their hands saying, pay attention to me. I'm at highest risk to develop food allergy. Those are the ones I worry about. And those are the ones we don't want to do testing on. We just want to feed them as early as they're ready to tolerate solid foods and keep in their diet. That's how we move the needle. That's how we prevent food allergy from happening. And thank you for clarifying persistent eczema because everybody's baby is a special snowflake. They hear eczema. All babies have some degree of eczema. Parents are like, that's me not doing any allergenic foods because my baby's at high risk. But the way you describe it is clearly persistent eczema. And I think that's kind of the operative word there, right? Yeah. It's not the stuff that comes and goes. It's, you know, if you have a good daily skincare regimen, lots of good unscented moisturizers, and you're doing that every day, and you need, you know, anything more than over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medication, because those spots just, they don't go, they don't get better. If I could share pictures with you, I mean, it's pretty unmistakable. I walk in a room immediately. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is persistent eczema. It's hard on a podcast. We do a lot of visuals on Instagram and in workshops and stuff, just showing what the allergic reactions look like because parents are like, oh, 
like a few dots on the face, that's different than a baby having full-blown body hives with, you know, profuse vomiting. Like, so I think it helps just put things in context to look at pictures, especially pictures of what these different skin situations look like on babies with different colored skin. We do a lot of education because, you know, red raised itchy patches on a black baby is going to look different than it is on a white or a Hispanic baby. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing while we're talking about rashes, it's a common thing for, for babies. Lots of babies have sensitive skin and frequent rashes that aren't due to allergy. Contact rashes from a variety of foods. So a lot of parents out there think strawberry is a common cause of allergy. It's not. I've never diagnosed legitimate strawberry allergy. It's like tomato. Tomato. It's right. the ascorbic acid. <laughs> yes. So strawberries, tomatoes, ranch dressing, salad dressing, citrus fruits, bananas, cinnamon, um, anything that directly touches the skin can potentially cause red irritation in those areas. That's a contact rash that does not progress towards an allergic reaction. These are all very um, low allergenic foods. Last week, I think I met 15 families. I had pineapple, tomato, oranges, but only certain types of oranges, blueberries, raspberries. And it was reassuring. And every time I'm like, I'm so glad you're here because I want to help clarify with you risk because I don't think they're actually... But you didn't even really need to come, right? Like, well, I mean... To be honest with you, no, they didn't, but I'm, I'm always thankful when they do because I'd much rather have a 15-minute conversation with somebody where testing is not involved and give them peace of mind than have them go home and be afraid to feed their baby. Or to have them go home and unnecessarily remove massive food groups of foods from their diet and their baby's diet. And that's what's happening, I think, a lot of with this kind of fear-mongering. Again, not understating the importance of true severe food allergy and how you know life-threatening it can be. But for the vast majority of parents, I really think it's important to have you know frank conversations that, no, this is not something you need to be worried about. Yes, it's scary, but let me show you what you would actually see if the baby had a full-blown allergic reaction. And the likelihood of being allergic to pineapple is you know almost not there. Right, right. Yeah. And that's one of the things we do and why we built our center is we have the space now if you're concerned for, you know, sometimes people look at me like, all right, I hear you, Dave. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, and sometimes I'll even say, look, the easiest thing in the world for me to do would be to spend, to put a hundred different food allergy tests on your child and not have this conversation with you. But I'm taking the time to have the conversation with you because that's the right thing to do here. Food allergy testing is not indicated. But even at that point, if they still don't have the confidence, come hang out with me. Come spend time here. Bring whatever food you want. Hang out in a room and feed your baby. I'll be here. I'll be in and out. I'll give you that that confidence and that reassurance. So that's something that we love to offer to families. So again, a little bit tongue in cheek, but like the easiest thing for me to do would be to just give you a hundred food allergy tests. That happens all the time. What do you recommend to parents who are like in that position? Okay, my pediatrician checked every single box on the lab thing, basically to test for every single food. Should I do it? Yes or no? I know this is like a case by case basis and you can't give individual medical advice, but like, what do you suggest for those parents who are worried about possible overtesting? Oh, yeah. So I would say run. Don't do it. Honestly, no, there's zero, zero clinical indication to ever do a large food allergy panel test. None, ever, whatsoever, ever. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Dr. Stukas, could you please tell us where we could go to learn more about your work, about your center? Because I think parents are going to be like flocking to all of your places after hearing this interview. Well, thank you. So you can find me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at AllergyKidsDoc. And then if you just search Nationwide Children's Hospital Food Allergy Center, um, you'll see our nice webpage and you'll see a mission statement and all that fun stuff, as well as you know how to get referrals and making appointments. So we, I, I love interacting with the public. I love helping parents with what I see are, are common concerns, a lot of misconceptions. And if there's anything that I can personally do, I'm more than happy to help. And thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me on this podcast and our audience, because I know you are probably the busiest person in the food allergy world. And I can't tell you how much it means to have you just kind of bring us down to earth with regard to some of this food allergy testing 
nonsense, to be honest, in many regards. But thank you for clarifying it. It's been really helpful. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope this is helpful to everybody. You guys, how cool is Dr. David Stukas? I've always admired his work, but like, I'm so honored that he came on the podcast because he's like numero uno in food allergies. And I love that he's just going to tell you straight up, like, no, if your doctor's trying to test for 50 things when your baby reacted to one food, you got to run, not walk. Like he keeps it real. I'm going to link to everything Dr. Stukas was talking about in today's episode on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash one, two, five. Dr. Stukas rhymes with mucus. Don't forget it. He's on Instagram at allergy kids doc. He makes food allergies interesting and that's pretty hard to do. So thanks for listening. Check him out. blwpodcast.com slash one, two, five. And I'll see you guys next time. friends. Are you looking for a new podcast? Maybe something you can share with your littles? Something that has some storytelling in it? Well, then look no further. We have Storytime with Philip and Mommy, where my son and I sit and discuss all the great books that you might love while we read them. So Little Golden Books, Berenstain Bears, and even the new classics like Bluey. We sit down, we read, we discuss, and we have so much fun doing it. Come and join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.